This is section 79 of Newspaper Articles by Mark Twain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Newspaper Articles by Mark Twain, section 79, Alta California, May 1867. Alta California, May 13th, 1867. St. Louis, March 15th, 1867. Happy! Editors, Alta. We took passage in the cars of the New Jersey Central at 8 p.m. of the 3rd of March, and left port in the midst of a cheerful snowstorm. I call it cheerful because there is something exquisitely satisfactory in whistling along through a shrouded land, following blindly wherever the demon in the lead may take you, yet sensible that he knows the way, and will steer his unerring course as faithfully as if it were noonday. Sensible also that you are as safe there as anywhere, sitting with back against the bulkhead, and feet crossed on the next seat, and hat drawn down to shade the eyes from the lamp overhead, sitting thus by the comfortable fire, smoking placidly, and dreaming of other times and other scenes, taking small heed of the storm without, yet scarcely conscious that it is snowing and is blowing drearily across the bleak moor as well, and that some people are out there suffering in it, and distressed, but that you ain't. That, on the contrary, you are perfectly happy, and tranquil, and satisfied, sitting thus, and smoking, and dreaming, and being timed and soothed by the clatter of the wheels. Well, you know there is something unspeakably comfortable about it. Unhappy that was the way I felt from eight till a little after twelve. The sleeping-cars were full, and I had to sit up all night. I had been talking latterly to a young soldier who had been all through the wars, from Bull Run to Lee's Surrender, a beardless veteran full of battle experiences and tales of camp and prison life, and was now within a hundred miles of his home, almost, for the first time in six years. Handsome, modest, honest, good-hearted boy of twenty-three, and more ready to tell about his schoolboy days than his six charges at Antietam. But gone the warrior was, and I was alone. Then I began to feel crampy a little, and then chilly, and presently I noticed that the fire was very low, and remembered that I had seen no one doctor it for over three hours. I got up and tried to open the stove door, but could not do it. A drowsy neighbor said it was locked to keep the passengers from burning too much coal. I looked again and found the keyhole. So it was true. The man said this was done on all them damned Jersey monopoler roads. I grew chilly fast then, and gradually grew peevish and fretful also. I observed that the furniture was mean and old, and that the train moved slowly and stopped to land a passenger every three hundred yards. After that, Every time we stopped, I cursed the railroad till we started again, and that afforded me some little satisfaction. I observed also that the usual mean man was aboard, who kept his window a little open to distress his fellows, and after that I noticed how fearfully dismal and unhappy the passengers looked, doubled up in uncomfortable attitudes on short seats in the dim, funereal light, like so many corpses they looked, of people who had died of care and weariness. And then I said I would rather walk than travel that route again, and I wished the company would burst up so completely that there wouldn't be enough money left to give the directors Christian burial, 
but I hoped they might need it shortly. I shall never be able to express how glad I was when the gray dawn stole over the plain, and the sun followed and cheered the scene, and the train stopped, and I gave my limbs a grateful stretch, and steeped my sorrowful soul in inspiring coffee. Insignificance in Office The conductor was pompous and discourteous, as natural wood-sawyers in office are apt to be. Your dog, with a brass collar with his master's name on it, is ever prone to snub the undecorated dog. Brown plied the fellow with questions at every opportunity, and scorned all rebuffs. He asked him, with fine irony, if that train ever ran by a town before they could stop it, and when he was fiercely answered, No! He said he thought such a thing might be possible, but he had not gone so far as to consider it probable, and he wanted to know if this was the country where the Jersey Lightning of history came from, and if they had any of it aboard that train. When we finally ran over a cow, he felt better satisfied about the speed of the train, because, as he said, he knew we must be going along tolerably lively, else we could not have overtaken the cow. Brown said to the brakeman, "'Your brother, the conductor, gets forty or fifty thousand dollars a year, maybe, I reckon.' "'No, he gets ten or fifteen hundred, if it's anything to you.' "'Possible? Why, I wouldn't have thought that a man could afford to put on forty-five thousand dollars worth of frills for fifteen hundred without losing money and getting discouraged.' Photograph of Pittsburgh, etc. We got to Pittsburgh at 2 p.m., 431 miles, 18 hours out, 25 miles an hour. Pittsburgh, as we saw it, is a vast, impenetrable bank of black smoke, and two or three long bridges stretching across a river. It is very picturesque. All through Pennsylvania the houses looked old and shabby—that is, all through the country. We supped at Alliance, Ohio, and took sleeping-cars for Indianapolis and what a luxury the berth was, both in anticipation and reality. Knowing I had a bed, sure, I had no occasion to hurry. So I smoked till three in the morning, and then undressed and turned in. It was a sort of palace. The berth was wide enough for three, and I had the whole stateroom to myself. I compelled Brown to sit up all night, so that he could come and tell me in case the train ran off the track. It was worth the forty hours I had gone without sleep to feel the luxury of lying down between clean sheets, and stretching out at full length, and drawing up and stretching out again, and turning over and fetching another celestial stretch. The music of the wheels was so tranquilizing, too. I dropped off to sleep, lulled by the ceaseless racket, and woke up at Indianapolis at nine a.m., I will mention here that one does not need a map to tell him when he crosses the boundary of one state and enters another. He can discover it in a moment by the appearance of the passengers that come on board. If they had Ohio or Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Indiana, or Illinois written on their foreheads, one could not detect their abiding places much easier. From Indianapolis to St. Louis we did as we had from the first, stopped at some shanty or other every fifteen minutes to discharge or take in forty cents worth of passengers, and if there is anything more aggravating than that, I do not know what it is. We reached St. Louis, eleven hundred miles from New York, fifty-two hours out, and if we had come straight through, we might have done it in half the time. I went straight home, and sat up till breakfast time, talking and telling other lies." 
Californians. I find S. R. Weed, an ancient California newspaper man of the days when Kendall and Frank Soule and some of the rest of you were in your frolicsome youth. He is in the insurance business now, but still corresponds with the Alta and the New York Tribune, and sends telegrams to the Chicago Tribune, Cincinnati Commercial, and New Orleans Times. He was on the Democrat here for a long time, and they say that he was war correspondent of the Herald and Tribune both for four years, and worked up his battles so differently for each by making them rebel victories for one and Union victories for the other, that he was not suspected by his employers. He is doing quite a lively insurance trade now, and is gradually cutting loose from newspaperdom. Mose Flanagan, formerly of San Francisco, owns considerably in the Olympic Theater here, and built it. This reminds me that Felix McCluskey, another San Franciscan, and an innocent, matter-of-fact man, is in Washington, and holds, or did hold, an office there which did not require that its occupant should know more than thirty-five or forty men ought to know. He had charge of the heating apparatus of the Capitol. They say that he had a steam engine in his department, which he was very proud of, and was always showing it and expatiating upon it to visitors. One day one of these asked him what its capacity was, how many horsepower. "'Horsepower? Hail!' he says. "'It goes by steam!' And that reminds me about an anecdote concerning General Sherman, who is now a resident of St. Louis. On his march down toward Atlanta, he constantly astonished the rebels with the facility with which he restored the railroad bridges they destroyed at his approach. They would annihilate a bridge just before he arrived, and the next morning there it was again, just as it had been before they touched it. At last a light dawned upon them. The original plans for the bridges had all been furnished from Cleveland, Ohio, and before Sherman started he took those plans, had each bridge duplicated in all its timbers and ironwork, took the pieces in a shook state on his trains, and so, when he found a bridge gone, he had nothing to do but get its mate out of the freight cars, bolt it together, and put it up. This thing worried the rebels a good deal when they found it out. One day they proposed to destroy the Dalton Tunnel to hinder Sherman's march, but an exasperated Confederate said, "'What in the nation's the use? That damned old Sherman's probably fetched another one along with him from Cleveland.'" Sociables Sociables appear to be the rage here. They are pretty well named. From fifty to a hundred lady members of a church meet at a private house, or in the lecture-room of a church, and all day long they sew. All day long they make pink cravats and ruffled shirts for the poor heathen in distant lands, and discuss their neighbors' characters, likely, and at night they serve up an elegant ungodly supper of cold turkey and salads and hot coffee and pies, and about that time a crowd of gentlemen arrive, and each lady is privileged to choose any gentleman she pleases, and escort him down to the table and wait on him and after that they talk and get more and more sociable until an hour of unchristian lateness, and then they go home satisfied that they have been helping the poor heathen along powerfully. They go home feeling as the girl felt when the minister asked her how she felt when he was wading out with her after baptizing her and washing her pure of the sins that had so long stained her girlish innocence. She said she felt bully. 
The sociables are usually held on Thursday evenings, and each congregation gives one every week or two. They are considered to be altogether the pleasantest things yet invented, for the comfort of people who are debarred from the charms of the dance and the intoxicating bottle. CHARACTERISTIC In San Francisco, as soon as you arrive, some friend hails, "'How'd you do? When'd you get down? How's things in the mountains? When you going back? How'd you like San Francisco? Take a drink? So long. See you again.' In New York they say, "'Uh, when'd you arrive?' How long are you going to stay? How do you like New York? Good morning. Here they say, Hello, glad to see you, by George. When did you get here? Why, you look as natural as a cow. How do you like St. Louis since you got back? Come, go to my room. Want to have a smoke with you. But don't you observe, they all ask that same old question, How do you like San Francisco? How do you like New York? How do you like St. Louis? It is all mighty aggravating. Cannot people think of something else besides that? It wouldn't make any difference if only one or two people asked the question, but to be bored with it twenty times a day is insufferable. It has set me to speculating about the other world. A man who has lived a long life, and been around a good deal, will probably meet as many as twenty or thirty thousand people there he was acquainted with on earth. They say we shall preserve our natural instincts. Now, think of being bored all through paradise or perdition with that same wretched old question of how you like it why it wouldn't make any difference which locality you landed in you would get so harried and badgered that you would wish you had gone to the other place and yet that would not mend the matter because communication is open between the two you remember that dives easily recognized lazarus and hailed him I wish I knew if Lazarus asked. However, it is no matter. The subject distresses me beyond measure. I do wish they would invent a new formula to inflict on strangers, because even if it were no more interesting than the old one, it would at least bear the evanescent charm of novelty. I hate that question as I do the hackneyed topic of the weather. However, when one is tired hating anything, he can always go to bed. I will. THE Euchre HORNS P.S. But I must not go to bed till I have spoken of the euchre horns. This is what they would call a stag sociable in the mountains. Twelve to sixteen or twenty gentlemen, composing the euchre horns club, meet once a week at each other's residences, and play euchre for a little of gilded and ribboned deer horns. The partners first scoring seventeen games are declared champions. Two gentlemen may then challenge them for the next meeting. Of course, all the other parties are playing in the meantime, but only for amusement. A party challenging for the horns, and failing to win them, cannot challenge again for several meetings. This gives all a chance in turn. This club has existed over two years, and its records have been strictly kept in a small, minute book. One brace of gentlemen held the horns for six successive meetings. These are the very pleasantest entertainments I have attended in a long time. There are no ladies present, and so you haven't got to be kept under the tiresome restraints of proper conduct all the time. The ladies of the house stay in the dining-room, where wines and a cold collation are set out, and wait on the gentlemen who drop in in small squads every now and then to refresh between games. You are not obliged to go in every time you finish a game, 
but then it is just as convenient to do it, and it makes things more uniform, you know. I never have won the horns yet, but I always beat the free lunch. The items of each contest are published in the morning papers next day. Suppose you try the euchre horns in San Francisco. You might make it the poker horns, if euchre is too mild. Alta California, May 19, 1867. St. Louis, March 25, 1867. At Home Again. Editors, Alta. I landed here in my old home more than three weeks ago, and have been very busy visiting old friends ever since. The changes that years have wrought in the city are not apparent to me. It is because they have chiefly been made at both ends of the town, and I have not been out of its center yet. And also the buildings that have been put up all through my part of the city are so blackened and begrimed with coal-smoke that I cannot persuade myself that I have not been perfectly familiar with them in the old times. When I left St. Louis she had a population of a hundred and fifty thousand, and that they called it a hundred and seventy-five thousand. Now she has a population of two hundred and four thousand, and they call it two hundred and fifty thousand. But you will admit that an increase of over fifty thousand in less than seven years is remarkable for an inland town. Bremen and Carondelet are great cities now, and are so knitted to the main city that the dividing lines are obliterated. They tell me that one may ride ten or twelve miles in a straight line north and south without changing streetcars. I mean to test the truth of it. One of the things that is constantly surprising me is the way the reality diminishes sizes and distances that have been lying on record in my memory so long. In my recollection, the courthouse was something prodigious, almost awe-inspiring. But when I came to look at it the other day, it had shrunken so much that I could not understand how it had ever held so large a place in my memory. The house I had always lived in had undergone the same wonderful process of seeming reduction, but you who have revisited your homes after years of absence understand this. Localities which in my memory were long distances apart I am astounded to find close together now. I start out for a moderate walk, and am amazed to find myself at the mound, or the shot-tower, and right in town at that. Or I go in another direction, and stumble on the Soulard Market, when I thought it was miles away. I find the cave, and Camp Springs, and Lafayette Park, when I am no more expecting them than I am expecting to stumble upon Great Salt Lake City. Why, sixteen or seventeen years ago, nobody thought of walking to these distant places. We made important Sunday excursions to them in omnibuses, at long intervals. Where the change is. I find no change of consequence in grown people. I do miss the dead. It does not surprise me to hear that this friend or that friend died at such and such a time, because I fully expected that sort of news. But somehow I had made no calculation on the infants. It had never occurred to me that infants grow up to be men and women in the course of years, and so I caught myself making such inquiries as, "'Well, how is little Johnny? Does he eat as much candy as ever?' and getting replies that made me feel inexpressibly old, such as, "'No, little Johnny is married now, and is captain of a steamboat.' Infants I had not seen for twelve or fifteen years had remained infants to me during all that time. These unexpected changes, from infancy to youth, 
and from youth to maturity, are by far the most startling things I meet with. Girls I used to trot on my knee could trot me that way now, if they wanted to, but somehow they don't. I meet these infants every day, and in place of the little short dresses and bibs and neglected noses I cherished in my memory, I find stately women, and long trails, and awful waterfalls. It is perfectly stunning. However, I am generally allowed a kiss for old acquaintance' sake, and I am sorry now that I didn't know all the female babies in the country when I left. One of my old sweethearts I have been dreaming of so long has got five children now. It was a great blow to me. If she had had fifty, I couldn't have stood it at all. Steamboating I find the long levee bordered with steamboats its entire length, as formerly, and now that the Mobile and Ohio Railroad is mostly under water, they are doing a heavy business south. The other river trades are good also. A great daily line of splendid boats, which connects with European steamers at New Orleans, does most of the carrying, both in freight and passengers, but it has not paid, and it is thought that the company will sell out this summer and quit. The lower river boats are being made larger and larger every year. The Great Republic, just finished at Louisville, will carry in the neighborhood of three thousand tons, possibly more. Even her custom-house measurement is twenty-five hundred tons. The largest load I ever saw one steamboat take into New Orleans was eighteen hundred tons, and that was bragged about for a long time. FEMALE SUFFRAGE The women of Missouri have started a sensation on their own hook. They are petitioning the legislature to so provide for the amending of the Constitution as to extend to them the privilege of voting, along with us and the nigs, you know. They published one of these petitions a few days ago, with about two hundred names to it, and among them were those of some of the best-known and most influential ladies of St. Louis. Thirty-nine members of the legislature have declared in favor of the movement. Don't you know that such a showing as that is amazing, in view of the colossal dimensions of the proposed innovation? It strikes me that way. If four or five henpecked husbands, or badgered and bully-ragged old bachelors, had been driven into a support of the measure, nobody would have been surprised. But when the list soars up to thirty-nine, it is time for all good men to tremble for their country. I attacked the monster in the public prints and raised a small female storm. But it occurred to me that it might get uncommon warm for one poor devil against all the crinoline in the camp, and so I anteed up and passed out, as the Sabbath-school children say. I don't want to say much about this subject in the Alta, because the ladies may take it up on the Pacific next, and I don't want to get myself into trouble there also. Preaching again. I went to church twice last Sunday, and to Sunday school three times. All my folks live here, and I have got to go mighty slow, you know. I infest all the prayer meetings and church sociables, and conduct myself in a manner which is as utterly unexceptional as it is outrageously irksome. I have kept up my lick so far, as the missionaries say, but I don't think I can stand it much longer. I never could bear to be respectable long at a stretch." Sunday afternoon, the superintendent of one of those populous Sunday schools came round to my pew and asked me if I had ever had any experience in instructing the young, in addressing Sunday schools. I said, My son, 
it is my strong suit i was still keeping up my lick as the missionaries say he said he would be glad if i would get up in the altar and make a few remarks and i said it would be the proudest moment of my life so i got up there and told that admiring multitude all about jim smiley's jumping frog and i will do myself the credit to say that my efforts were received with the most rapturous applause and that those of the solemn deacons to stop it were entirely unheeded by the audience i honestly intended to draw an instructive moral from that story but when i got to the end of it i couldn't discover that there was any particular moral sticking out around it anywhere and so i just let it slide however it don't matter i suppose those children will cipher a moral out of it somehow because they are so used to that sort of thing i gained my main point anyhow which was to make myself respected in california because you know you cannot help but respect a man who makes speeches to sunday schools and devotes his time to instructing youth i did not intend to lecture in st louis but i got a call to do something of that kind for the benefit of a sunday school and as long as i had to keep up my lick anyway i thought i had better go ahead so i preached twice in the mercantile library hall i haven't vanity enough to print all that the newspaper said but i will venture to extract a fourth of the republicans notice the audience was large and appreciative and financially and every other way the entertainment proved a complete success in fact mark twain achieved a very decided success he succeeded in doing what we have seen emerson and other literary magnates fail in attempting he interested and amused a large and promiscuous audience we shall attempt no synopsis of his entertainment ostensibly it was on the sandwich islands but while it contained not a little valuable information and many passages of felicitous description it also embraced many other topics geographically and otherwise foreign to the matter in hand and had many a piquant piece of humor interwoven which with the right flash of genuine wit startled with laughter and kept alive the attention of the audience i think that is pretty complimentary considering that when i delivered that lecture i was not acquainted with a single newspaper man in st louis i do not do anything here but gad around among old friends but if you want to know the places where audiences are jolly and where they snap up a joke before you can fairly get it out of your mouth they are st louis san francisco san jose and carson city bad government the mayor of st louis is elected by the people and the board of police commissioners is appointed by the governor of the state the commissioners appoint the chief of police the street inspector the police force etc this plan pretty effectually prevents the turning of the police part of the city government into a machine for hoisting demagogues and politicians into power and is a good feature but for some reason or other the mayor and the commissioners have fallen out with each other and do nothing but fight like cats and dogs all the time one party accuses the other of all sorts of outrageous things in newspaper publications and the next day out comes a furious reply from the other side it spices our breakfast handsomely anyhow the commissioners say that during the cholera season when people were dying so fast that carts were sent around and dead bodies dumped in by the dozen without the formality of being shrouded first the mayor kept two hundred corpses stacked up on a sandbar at the lower end of the city 
and refused for four days to let them be buried by the servants of the city said it was the county government's place to bury them the county held out obstinately and so did the mayor so the commissioners had to fill a detachment of policemen full of whiskey so they wouldn't mind the lively flavor of the departed and stand guard over them as long as they held together and they say that all those twenty-two policemen had to be kept full of whiskey during all that four days at a ruinous expense and you know yourself that you could bury a whole community for less money than it would cost to keep twenty-two policemen in soak for four days and stands to reason that you could and finally the citizens in the neighborhood not being fortified with whiskey began to consider the perfume from the dead house as rather disagreeable and so they went to work and burned it down with all its fearful cargo since i have been in the city the child of an indigent woman has lain four days unburied because of this quarrel between the police the mayor and the county however the child was not dead and so i suppose there wasn't really any occasion to bury it but it showed the animus of the thing you know the commissioners say the mayor shelters the gamblers and thieves protects them from arrest when he can and gets them out of prison when they are incarcerated in return the mayor says the commissioners do not make the street officer do his duty that deadfalls and pitholes are left exposed everywhere with not even a lantern near them at night to warn the stranger says they lie about him and never attend to their own duties and he says he disguised himself one night and walked eight squares without ever finding a policeman except a squad of half a dozen whom he caught warming themselves at a stove in a gin-mill i guess that story is pretty straight you know yourself that when a policeman is cold he is going to hunt a place to warm himself the first thing and when he is warm he will skirmish around for a cool place and whenever things get dull and he can't find anything in the world to do to pass away the time he will just get reckless and go on his beat a while maybe you can't tell me anything about the police because i know them by the back i like the police well enough but i don't consider it judgment to bet on them this mayor here is a mighty plain-spoken man he wrote to the convention that he had never sought an office and never wanted one that he had served two terms as mayor but never thanked the people for electing him and never thanked the convention for nominating him said he didn't want the office now and wouldn't thank them to nominate him and wouldn't thank the people if they elected him he wanted that understood plainly beforehand he was not going to be under obligations to anybody and they went ahead nevertheless and nominated him by a vote of about ten to one he will be elected i suppose and if he has got a spark of humanity in him he will start a graveyard on his own private account to bury disputed corpses in public schools the public schools of st louis are in a far more flourishing condition than those of any other southern city or state a two-mill tax and the revenues from ample school lands furnish all the money necessary to build or rent all the schoolhouses needed and furnish them with teachers and other furniture the total value of property used for school purposes in st louis is five hundred and thirty three thousand four hundred and forty dollars and ninety five cents the average number of teachers employed is two hundred and four the number of pupils enrolled is fourteen thousand five hundred and fifty six this is an increase of five thousand in nine years two-thirds of the pupils were born in st louis 
The normal school shows a graduating class of 26 this year. The high school graduating class numbers 27. The total number of public schoolhouses in the city is 30. The superintendent's report, now before me, says of the colored schools ordered by state law that the efforts of the board to establish schools for colored children have not as yet been successful, but that a special committee has been ordered to rent proper buildings and open such schools without any delay that can possibly be avoided. The new Webster and Carroll schoolhouses just completed rank among the finest edifices in the city. They cost, respectively, $35,000 and $40,000. As to wages of teachers, the female principal of the normal school gets $2,000 a year, one female assistant $1,100, and one $850. The male principal of the high school gets $2,750, one male assistant $2,000, three male assistants $1,700 each, one female assistant $1,200, two female assistants, $1,000 each, and another $700. Nine male principals of the district schools get $1,700 each, three others get $1,500 each, three female principals get $1,000 each, eight female principals get $900 each, and then there is a whole raft of small fry female teachers who get from $550 to $700. Two music teachers get $1,500 each. They don't teach French or Latin or such things in the district schools, but they run a good deal of German and mental arithmetic and a newfangled study they call moral culture. I don't recollect it in our school. Alta California, May 26, 1867. New York, April 16, 1867. Notable Things in St. Louis. Editors Alta. Well, I had to bid good-bye to St. Louis at last. I found it and left it, the same happy, cheerful, contented old town, a town where the people are kind and polite even to strangers, where you can go into a business house you never saw before, and speak to a man you never heard of before, and get a perfectly civil answer. It reminded me of the Pacific Coast. Of course, I noticed some little unusual odds and ends of things that set me to thinking. I heard people say, prink, to express that they had been fixing up, and heard them say that they had been peeking through a crack, for instance, instead of peeping, and heard them say, collate, instead of reckon, which latter is a perfectly legitimate word, as the altar readers may see by reference to the eighteenth verse of the eighth chapter of Romans, and heard them say, I admire to do so-and-so, which is barbarous, and heard them say, Bosket, for basket, and gloss, for glass, and be you going home, for are you going home, and heard them say, she is quite pretty, when they meant she is right pretty, the one expressing perfection and the other merely a degree of excellence. I heard those and many other unhappy provincialisms which warned me that many New England people have gone westward and are going to mar the ancient purity of the Missourian dialect if somebody don't put a stop to it. But the funniest thing to me was to hear those same immigrants criticizing our manners of speaking and calling attention to what they honestly considered infelicities of language on our part. I couldn't stand that right well. 
and i noticed and was glad to see that the nicholson pavement was used a good deal in st louis and i also noticed that the ladies did not dress in full fashion which is a thing that always distresses me no woman can look as well out of the fashion as in it and i noticed that the children in st louis have thin legs as a general thing you see they haven't any hills to climb and i noticed that few young men were bald-headed which is not the case on the pacific coast and i noticed that whenever people hadn't anything to do they washed their hands they use a great deal of coal there and the air is always filled with invisible coal dust that soils everything it touches and i noticed that flour was nineteen dollars a barrel and i observed that the political bitternesses engendered during the war are still about as strong as they ever were individual friends and whole families of old tried friends are widely separated yet don't visit and don't hold any intercourse with each other if you give a dinner party for either gentlemen or ladies or both it is much the best policy to invite democrats only or republicans only even church congregations are organized not on religious but on political bases and the creed begins i believe in abraham lincoln the martyr president of the united states or i believe in jefferson davis the founder of the confederate states of america the genuine creeds begin that way although to keep up appearances they still go through the motions and use the ancient formula i believe in jesus christ etc and one of the pleasantest things i noticed was that those old-fashioned twilights still remain and enrich all the landscape with a dreamy vagueness for two hours after the sun has gone down it is such a pity they forgot to put in the twilight when they made the pacific coast and it is another pity that they forgot to put in any splendid sunsets too when the country is so large and there would have been such a fine opening for them up the mississippi i went up to hannibal quincy and keokuk on the upper mississippi the first and the last named are enjoying a season of rest but not refreshment the railroads have stricken them dead for a year or two and i cannot help fearing for quincy also now that she is going to build a bridge and let her trade cross the mississippi and go through without stopping st louis is doing the same and somebody has got to suffer for it some day no doubt the railroads have badly crippled the trade of the keokuk packets too they used to go crowded with passengers and freight all the time but they have room and to spare now and they don't set a good table any more either they never did set a very good table for that matter but it was at least better than it is now their officers are princes though hannibal by a native historian hannibal has had a hard time of it ever since i can relect and i was raised there first it had me for a citizen but i was too young then to really hurt the place next jimmy finn the town drunkard reformed and that broke up the only saloon in the village but the temperance people liked it they were willing enough to sacrifice public prosperity to public morality and so they made much of jimmy finn dressed him up in new clothes and had him out to breakfast and a dinner and so forth and showed him off as a great living curiosity a shining example of the power of temperance doctrines when earnestly and eloquently set forth which was all very well you know and sounded well and looked well in print but jimmy finn couldn't stand it he got remorseful about the loss of his liberty 
and then he got melancholy from thinking about it so much, and after that he got drunk. He got awfully drunk in the chief citizen's house, and the next morning that house was as if the swine had tarried in it. That outraged the temperance people and delighted the opposite faction. The former rallied and reformed Jim once more, but in an evil hour temptation came upon him, and he sold his body to a doctor for a quart of whiskey, and that ended all his earthly troubles. He drank it all at one sitting, and his soul went to its long account, and his body went to Dr. Grant. This was another blow to Hannibal. Jimmy Finn had always kept the town in a sweat about something or other, and now it nearly died from utter inanition. After this, Joe Dudding, a reckless speculator, started a weekly stage to the town of Florida, thirty miles away, where a couple of families were living, and Hannibal revived very perceptively under this wild new sensation. But then the scarlet fever came, and the hives, and between them they came near hiving all the children in the camp, and so Hannibal took another backset. But pretty soon a weekly newspaper was started, which bred a fierce spirit of enterprise in the neighboring farmers, because when they had any small potatoes left over that they couldn't sell, they didn't throw them away as they used to do, but they took them to the editor and traded them off for subscriptions to his paper. But finally the potato rot got him, and Hannibal was floored again. However, somebody started a pork house, and the little village showed signs of life once more and then came the measles and blighted it. It stayed blighted a good while, too. After a while they got to talking about building a plank road to New London, ten miles away, and after another while they built it. This made business. Then they got excited and built a gravel road to Paris, thirty or forty miles. More business. They got into a perfect frenzy and talked of a railroad, an actual railroad, a railroad two hundred miles long, a railroad from Hannibal to St. Joseph, and, behold, in the fullness of time, in ten or fifteen years, they built it. A sure enough prosperity burst upon the community now. Property went up. It was noted as a significant fact that instead of selling town lots by the acre, people began to sell them by the front foot. Hannibal grew fast, doubled its population in two years, started a daily paper or two, and came to be called a city. Sent for a fire-engine, and had her out, bedecked with ribbons, on Fourth of July, but the engine-house burnt down one night and destroyed her, which cast a gloom over the whole community. And they started militia companies, and sons of temperance, and cadets of temperance. Hannibal always had a weakness for the temperance cause. I joined the cadets myself, although they didn't allow a boy to smoke, or drink, or swear, but I thought I never could be truly happy till I wore one of those stunning red scarves and walked in procession when a distinguished citizen died. I stood it four months, but never an infernal distinguished citizen died during the whole time, and when they finally pronounced old Dr. Norton convalescent, a man I had been depending on for seven or eight weeks, I just drew out. I drew out in disgust, and pretty much all the distinguished citizens in the camp died within the next three weeks. Well, Hannibal's prosperity seemed to be of a permanent nature, but St. Louis built the North Missouri Railroad and hurt her, and Quincy tapped the Hannibal and St. Joe in one or two places, which hurt her still worse, and then the war came, and the closing years of it almost finished her. 
now they are trying to build a branch railroad to some place in the interior they call moberly at a cost of half a million and if that fails some of the citizens will move they only talk moberly now the church members still talk about religion but they mix up a good deal of moberly in it the young ladies talk fashion and moberly and the old ones talk of charity and temperance piety the grave and moberly hannibal will get moberly and it will save her it will bring back the old prosperity but won't they have to build another road to protect the moberly and another and another to protect each enterprise of the kind a railroad is like a lie you have to keep building to it to make it stand a railroad is a ravenous destroyer of towns unless those towns are put at the end of it and a sea beyond so that you can't go further and find another terminus and it is shaky trusting them even then for there is no telling what may be done with trestle work which reminds me of jim townsend's tunnel he was a stockholder in the daily mine in virginia city and he heard that his company had let a contract to run a tunnel two hundred and fifty feet to strike the ledge he visited the premises and found a man starting a tunnel in very near the top of a very sharp hill he said you're the man that's got the contract to run this tunnel i reckon yes two hundred and fifty feet i hear yes well it's going to be a mighty troublesome tunnel and expensive why because you've got to build the last hundred and sixty-five feet of it on trestle work it's only eighty-five feet through the hill keokuk and quincy the ups and downs i have exaggerated a little in hannibal's case will fit a good many towns in the mississippi valley and marysville and one or two others on the pacific coast keokuk iowa was one of the most stirring and enterprising young cities in america seven years ago but railroads and land speculations killed it in a single night almost and for six years it has been sleeping it is reviving now though and a new and vigorous prosperity has promised it its chances are more to be depended upon than hannibal's i think but quincy is a wonderful place it has always thrived sometimes slowly and steadily sometimes with a rush but always making an unquestionable progress it claims a population of twenty-five thousand now and it looks as if the claim were well founded it is the second city of illinois in population business activity and enterprise and high promise for the future i have small faith in their project of bridging the mississippi but they ought to know their own business i spent a night at general singleton's one of the farmer princes of illinois he lives two miles from quincy in a very large and elegantly furnished house and does an immense farming business and is very wealthy he lights up his house with gas made on the premises made from the refuse of petroleum by pressure the apparatus could be stowed in a bathroom very conveniently all you have to do is to pour a gallon or two of the petroleum into a brass cylinder and give a crank a couple of turns and the business is done for the next two days he uses seventy burners in his house and his gas bills are only a dollar and a quarter a week i don't take any interest in prize bulls astonishing jackasses and prodigious crops but i took a strong fancy to that gas apparatus end of section seventy nine